Hello, I'm Rhiannon, and you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. Today on the show, it is our final episode of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. The building crowd was joyful as Ireland's voting constituencies declared their results one at a time for yes. Throughout our season on the decline of democracy, we've looked at a number of areas in which democracy is under pressure across the globe. These have included the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the impact of populism, conspiracy theories, economic inequality and globalisation, and attacks on freedom of the press. However, we've also seen some examples of democracy continuing to thrive. So this begs the question, what can be done to protect and enshrine democracy across the world? It's by creating that connective tissue in society that we create the space for democracy to flourish and thrive and grow. Today's episode features two guests. First, I chat with Ian Walker, the Executive Director of New Democracy, a research organisation established to ensure citizens trust their government's decision-making and democratic processes. After the break, you'll hear from Tim Hollow, the Greens candidate for Canberra, on the crisis of democracy in contemporary society, how environmental and ecological challenges are influencing democracy around the world, and some practical steps we as individuals can take to protect democracy in the future. Welcome, Ian, to the Global Questions podcast. We're super excited to have you on the show today. Pleasure to join you, Rihanna. So today is our last episode for our in-depth series on the decline in democracy. To kick us off, are you able to give us a brief explanation on who you are, your work, and why you believe fighting for democracy is so important? Sure. My name is Ian Walker. I've, I've run the New Democracy Foundation for about 11 years now. Uh, New Democracy is a small privately funded uh, research foundation, a charity, um, trying to solve that problem that everyone complains about how we do democracy. What are we trialling that's new that can uh, move us ahead? Absolutely. Now, in your organisation, New, De- New Democracy, the term deliberative democracy is thrown around a lot. Are you able to speak to that idea and explain it to our audience? Sure. A, a really easy way to think of it is right now a lot of our politics runs on public opinion. What do you think in the next 10 seconds? And we think about Public opinion is probably what's wrong with our politics, and we want to look at public judgment. So the easiest way to think of this is like a criminal jury. We don't run them on public opinion basis. Someone doesn't get arrested and we go, well, we'll phone poll a thousand people. You don't want that. You want people to consider an array of evidence. And that's why we have juries sit through several days, hear contested viewpoints, and we ask them to find common ground. It's taking the time to think and consider a diversity of viewpoints in an effort to find common ground because really that's at the core of what our democracy should be. It's not about votes. It's actually about acting on the informed common uh, sentiment of the people, uh, informed general will. That's the kind of decisions we'd like to take. So in our very first episode of this season, we touched on the COVID-19 pandemic and its influence on democracy both internationally and at home in Australia. What effect, in your opinion, has the pandemic had on democracy overall Firstly, there's really two definitions of democracy. There's a big one and a little one. Now, the big one is things like freedom of association, free press, rule of law, all those things. And then there's a narrow definition, which is how we make public decisions. Just the bit we see in our parliaments. We tend to concern ourselves more with that. So, I mean, the interesting thing that stood out is that as an average, 
people's trust and confidence in governments has gone up. For a long time, a lot of people have said, okay, we're now seeing a role for government more so than they have in the past. Mm, no, that's 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 a really interesting way to put it. Do you think there are major issues, whether they're international or at home in Australia, that you think are negatively influencing democracy in contemporary society? I think the main negative influence on our democracy is elections. Think about why we have democracy. I mean, we all know it's a nice thing. And when it comes to why do we elect people to make decisions for us? And there's really two reasons. There's some decisions that affect us all. We're going to build train lines. We're going to have uh, welfare systems. There's some things that just apply to everyone. You need to have a mechanism for resolving what's the best way forward as a society. Now, if you think about that as your goal, I want social cohesion. The way we do democracy is probably not how you'd get there. You wouldn't set yourself up for an election, which essentially involves trying to scare the hell out of the voter that the alternative option is much worse. And what's worse now is that used to be just for a couple of months around elections. Now electioneering is perpetual. You never hear a politician of either side say, actually, that's a pretty good idea and we're on board with that. It actually does happen a little bit at lower levels of government, but you never see it because it doesn't help their election approach. Any opposition, left or right, has to keep you feeling a sense of crisis, a sense of the end of the world, because it works. When we turn up to vote, it's generally not because anyone's read a policy platform. It's generally you vote because you hate the other guy more. And that's the biggest negative trend in our democracy is that we are amping up our society around public opinion and elections instead of just taking a deep breath and saying, what's the society we want to be in? And the best people to do that are everyday people like we see in juries in the courts. I know there's that sense of thinking, well, politicians are professionals this. You think that because they're on TV in a tie. If you actually look at a lot of their background, not, not a lot of deep work experience, not a lot that sets them apart. But what they have is an impairment on their judgment that stops them considering all options because they're locked into a platform or they're locked into an ideology. Where I'm an optimist is when we share a problem with a randomly chosen group of 40 people and just say, solve the problem. We will resource you to the highest degree. This is your best democratic experience. It's like being a senator without all the bad things in, involved as being a senator. So, yeah, I think I'm an optimist around that because we see the solution and increasingly we see politicians from all parts of the political compass saying, gee, this is actually a pretty good idea. Um, you'd be surprised the hardest problem we actually face is that from 10 years ago they used to say, oh, there's no problem to fix. Today they say, oh, I'd like to do this but I really don't think the voters care about this. That's, that's the number one problem we need to change. We're trying to do something simple to show people care. There's a really simple petition at changepolitics.org.au because I need to be able to walk into a political office and say, stop, 150,000 people do care about this because if they think in votes, let's show them votes will move for those who are prepared to, to really champion democratic innovations. So do you think that this kind of change needs to come top down from governments or bottom up from people or is there kind of a sweet spot in the middle? It's a blend. Politicians hold the keys to the rules of our democracy today. They set the rules for every part of donations and electoral reimbursement and anything else that can be trialled. But what are they responsive to? Yeah, if people are dropping them emails and saying, I care about this, what are you doing? 
it's really rare they get an email just saying, I'm concerned for democracy. I've seen this cool idea. I'd love to know what you think about it. These are people who got into this job because they're interested in democracy, so they respond to that question well. So it can take just two or three people writing to an MP, and it does mean that there are parliaments we can go into where literally MPs will say, people are bringing up your stuff, knowing that citizens are actually thinking about things that they might work, they might not work, but I'm comfortable with you giving it a go. So, yes, I'll be the endless optimist for the rest of your podcast. (laughs) Now, I'd love to hear your opinion on what, steps governments, whether it's, you know, the international community, national government, or even on a state local level, how can they help protect democracy in the future? At a simple level, do things. If anyone's interested in what our democracy can be, look at Ireland. And, you know, we don't take issue positions, but I'm going to air an example. And all I ask people to appreciate is, gee, that sounds difficult. Ireland had a right to life prohibition in their constitution and is arguably one of the most religious Western countries. They had a right-aligned government that was seeking to uh, reform abortion law. Any politician we speak to just reels back and says, that sounds absolutely impossible. What did they do? An elected leader, a prime minister stands up and says, I think this is a problem in our country. People are dying. Some people are having to fly to England. I think we need to look at this. What they didn't do was come out with an answer and have everyone attack them. They convened a citizens' assembly of 100 people picked at random. Uh, If 10% of the population is under 24, 10% of the room is under 24. We just follow those 10-year age brackets. It's 50-50 male and female. And using random selection, we tend to hit people by background and by blue-collar job, white-collar job, in rough proportion to society. It's just who you see in the street. And they're given one task a question, and they're asked to find common ground. What was interesting in that exercise is that we know some of the people in the Irish government uh, with responsibility for that. And throughout, they were actually nervous that the group was a long way apart from what either party would ever have considered as a reform. Ultimately, it then went to a referendum. And as you know, referendums are hard to pass. It passed 67-33, which is a massive result in those terms. About half the people who left the polling places when they did exit polls remembered hearing from people like them who are at the middle of the process. A government had been able to say, in the event this passes, we're going to act on the recommendations of this assembly. If you think of most political debates, what normally happens is you go right to the edge of the most extreme case. So in abortion law, if you are opposed to legalisation, you'll say, well, this will lead to designer babies. It's a form of eugenics. If you're in favour of reform, you would say, this means a very serious rape and sexual assault victim will be forced to have the children. And and you can see that these are very polarising positions. Now, what actually happened in the Irish case is that that assembly, after considerable time, landed on about seven scenarios where they thought the service should be available, including just purely by choice. They also set a couple of prohibitions where it shouldn't. And the main one was on gender selection because there are some cultural groups where a male or a female is, is, is valued differently. So all of a sudden, as elected leader, you can say, if this referendum passes, this is the nature of the law that will pass and the extreme arguments come out. Now, for me, if you're thinking, what's the future of democracy? What a beautiful balance. Much as a judge finds a jury complimentary, it grounds the decision in real people. It's not just the state sending people to jail. Here's an example where an elected leader can decide what goes on the agenda. But everyday people from all parts of Ireland and society can actually be really central to the decision and play a really substantive role. It takes courage, but there's now enough examples of this. When we share this story with Australian politicians, they see that lesson and say, that is more difficult than what we need to take on. We're interested.
Is there anything else that individuals can do to help protect democracy and develop strong democratic practices? More broadly, I think the number one thing I say to people is surrender a little bit of your certainty. Certainty is the hardest thing to overcome because politics runs on certainty. Politics runs on being binary. Now, I know you didn't want an abstract answer. What can people practically do? Increasingly, we see people forming little groups to talk to all candidates. So where the voices want to get behind one candidate and it's a great innovation in, you know, bottom-up politics, there are other groups that come together and start themselves and just say, hey, we're 20 people. Get online, share it on Facebook and say, we want to do this. And yeah, what are the actions you take? Firstly, encourage a real mix of people. You know, it's really easy to talk to people just like us, just like yourself. Push through that. Encourage differences of views. Someone might have views you find awful or non-understandable. Give them a hearing. Have a chat. It can be a really interesting hour. The last thing I'd leave for you is there's a couple of great books out there. And there's one book in particular I've got to call out. It's by a guy called David Van Raybrook. It's called Against Elections. And you can, you can read it in an afternoon on the beach. It's only 150 pages, but it will blow your mind. And when you get that book, if it does have that effect, maybe pass it to a friend. Books are a great way of spreading an idea. And um, yeah, maybe that's a great way to start sharing things. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And look, that's some great advice, both abstract and practical advice for, for our listeners. Look, Ian, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. If anyone wants to know more about you, get in touch or even learn more about new democracy, what's the best way for them to do that? We have two websites because one's the very pristine one for our political audience, newdemocracy.com.au. My email address is on there. I am just ian.walker at newdemocracy.com.au. If you want the much easier to digest two-minute video, check out changepolitics.org.au. And if you can take one action, spread the word. Great advice. A great way to end the podcast. Thank you, Ian. Pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity, Rhiannon. Keep listening because after the break, I chat to Tim Hollow on the challenges of contemporary democracy around the world and at home in Australia. Do you love global questions? Then you'd be happy to know that we run events all through the year. Find us on your socials. Search Young Diplomat Society to keep up to date with upcoming events. Welcome, Tim, to the Global Questions podcast. Thanks for having me, Rhiannon. To kick us off, are you able to briefly explain who you are, your work, what you do, and the reasons why you think fighting for democracy is so important? Yeah, sure. I come to democracy activism from a couple of different directions. I have spent 20 years or so as a climate change advocate and activist, basically. And increasingly over that period of time where we've had not just really clear science and really clear solutions, but also very, very strong popular backing to implement those solutions, we just haven't been getting the action <laughs> And it's become increasingly clear to me and many, many others in that space that there's something wrong, you know, with our democratic systems. If something as clear as this and as urgent and as serious is not getting the action that we need. Going back a lot further as well, I grew up as the child of refugees and the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. And my grandfather in particular was a very politically thoughtful man. And so I grew up with a, you know, a clear understanding from him 
of how you can be living as he and his family were in Europe in a certain amount of privilege with a fairly serious amount of of confidence in the civilised world around you, that things were okay, until they really, really weren't. And the safety and security and privilege were ripped away with the most awful consequences. So I grew up, I guess, from a very early age with an understanding that democracy is fragile and that the consequences of the failure of democracy are very, very severe indeed. So those two kind of things started to to merge for me, I guess. I spent several years after my uni education working in, in direct climate campaigning in for a couple of small organisations and then for Greenpeace. And then I went to work for Christine Milne as the Green Senator who had the climate change portfolio and worked for her right through the years of a whole lot of disastrous climate politics and then the amazing success of being able to negotiate and implement the clean energy package that we had in place in Australia for two years through the Gillard minority government and then seeing it all torn apart and seeing how that collapsed. And so I kind of really burned out of mainstream politics, I guess, at that point and took a big step back and did a lot of thinking about what is it that needs to change, did a lot of thinking about the culture of our democratic systems and our decision-making systems. And yeah, increasingly have gotten involved in deep democracy work, in participatory democracy, in thinking about the blockage to the change that we need. And we really need to actually dig very deep and work out new ways of doing things. Sounds like you've got a very diverse background, not just in politics, but the core of democracy as well. So this season, we've looked at the decline of democracy across several areas, and we're seeing these trends along the idea that democracy is in a crisis. Do you think that's true? Is there a crisis with contemporary democracy? Absolutely, I think it's true. But I guess the lens I'd put on it is that in crisis is opportunity. Crisis is usually the sign that things are bubbling away in various directions. One of the most important political philosophers of the the 20th century, Antonio Gramsci, wrote about the moment, as he put it, when the old world is dying and the new is struggling to be born, and this being the most dangerous time of all. I do think the old is dying. I do think that the systems of liberal representative democracy that we've had are failing. They're not delivering on what the people want. They're excluding the vast majority of people from participation in democracy, and they're getting decisions very, very, very wrong. There's been some brilliant research by some American scholars showing that there's absolutely no correlation, literally no correlation between popular sentiment on major issues and the results of legislation through American Congress. The only actual correlation is between what the powerful and rich want and what is delivered. So democracy is not operating appropriately there. And we see it in the massive crash in public confidence in our democratic systems. Here in Australia, in the early to mid-2000s, there was over 80% confidence that our democratic systems were working reasonably well. In the 15 years intervening, it's crashed to barely 40%. And good reason. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. As I started with, climate change is an obvious one, equity, housing, affordability, all of these things that matter to people's lives. We're not getting the results we need. You touched on this briefly as well, but I kind of want to dive a bit more into it. 
You also have a book coming out, Living Democracy, an Ecological Manifesto for the End of the World as We Know It. I would love to hear a bit more about that. And also, do you think there are other issues such as environment, ones like climate change, that are really negatively influencing democracy? And and how has that kind of played out? So to answer the second question first, the most obvious thing, I think, is the role of donations from fossil fuel corporations. It's actually symbolic. The donations are sort of the tap on the shoulder from the corporations to the politicians to remind the politicians kind of who's in charge. But it is absolutely a corruption of our democratic systems that we see that corporations like Santos and Woodside, who are the key drivers of the climate crisis, can buy access to politicians, can buy influence over politicians, and drown out the voices of the people. The book Living Democracy, what I attempt to do with that is kind of put it into a picture of the system's that we're currently working within and paint a hopeful picture as well. The core of the argument is that our current system of democracy is only one way of doing democracy. The idea that we have to have this adversarial system where you've got effectively two forces bashing each other over the head until one of them wins, a representative democratic system where the vast majority of the people are excluded from decision-making most of the time and are basically told democracy is you turning up to vote for the least worst option once every few years and in between elections, bugger off. We don't want to hear from you. Protest is increasingly delegitimized and criminalized. Advocacy groups are being attacked and shut out of political debates, whereas Santos and Woodside and co are absolutely welcome to come into the process. (laughs) Now, You're the Greens candidate for the seat of Canberra. I'd love to hear your opinion on what steps governments, whether they're international, national, or even at local levels, can do to help protect democracy in the future. So I think there's a whole raft of things that governments can do at various different levels. And at the different levels, there are different options and different, different ways of doing things. The most obvious things that at a federal level we need to do are simply ban corporate donations, particularly from the most destructive corporations. But really, if we believe in democracy, we should believe, you know, one person, one vote. And the idea that major profitable corporations should be able to influence decision making on the basis of their wealth is just anti-democratic. We need, obviously, you know, anti-corruption commissions and all sorts of things like that. We also need representatives who have a different relationship with their constituencies, where they have town hall meetings and kitchen table conversations to inform the kind of approach that the MP is taking. Implementing citizens' juries and people's assemblies in communities to actually enable people to get involved in the decision-making of government. And they're just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many ways of getting people in. That's definitely some great advice. Now, kind of on the other side of the coin, a lot of our listeners are young uni students from all across Australia and the world. What can individuals do to help protect democracy and ensure these processes continue into the future? The first thing I'd say is don't think of yourself as an individual because democracy is not about individuals. Democracy is about the community. Democracy is all about how we as people work together as interdependent communities. So find the people around you and get involved and think of everything as democracy. This is another really important thing. I think that democracy isn't just parliaments. Democracy isn't just voting. If you're involved in a club on campus, that's democracy. 
getting involved in, in communal decision making together in a club on campus or if you're getting involved in community gardening and there's thriving movement of young people doing urban agriculture in Canberra at the moment, that's doing democracy because it's people coming together, do something together for the common future. It's by you know, creating that connective tissue in society that we create the space for democracy to flourish and thrive and grow. See, the damage that's being done to democracy is able to work because the exclusion of people from our democratic systems and because capitalism and all of these systems which drive us apart as individuals have made the soil barren and have made it difficult for the seeds of democracy to grow. So the best thing to do is find other people, create those fertile soils so that democracy can take hold. Mm, that's definitely some great advice. Now, that brings us to the end of the interview today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Very optimistic takeaways for our audience. Absolute pleasure. If anyone wants to know more about you, get in touch or read some more of your work, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm on Twitter at, at Tim Hollow. I'm on Facebook as Tim Hollow numeral four Canberra. Find me on social media and I'm always happy to have a chat. Absolutely. We will link all of those um, in our episode description. Tim, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Been a pleasure. And that is all for this season on The Decline in Democracy. It has been an absolute pleasure being your host and talking to these amazing guests over the past few months and bringing you, our listeners, a wide range of interesting and engaging discussions on the decline of democracy around the world. For now, the Global Questions team will be having a short break as we prepare for our upcoming season. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere. So if you want to keep updated on when we'll be back or even hear a sneak peek of the topic for next season, check out all of our social media pages. So stay tuned and we'll be back in your ears very soon. Bye.